enlightening discussion on leadership, while also exploring your own path to becoming your fullest self. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. The recent 2022 NBAA Leadership Conference focused on ways the business aviation community can move forward from the challenges of the pandemic, with several expert-led sessions that explored next-level thinking, being a positive influencer, and motivating individuals on your team. That also included a live recording of event keynote speaker Ryan Hawke's acclaimed podcast, The Learning Leader, in which he spoke with Monty Moran, author and former co-CEO of Chipotle Mexican Grill. The topic was Becoming Your Fullest Self, and today we'll share a bit of that conversation, beginning with what it takes to be a leader and Monty's recollections of two of the people who helped him answer that question. So, Monty, the, the way I start these, I've been super lucky to talk to a lot of amazing leaders. That's why when they posed this idea, I was pumped to have the chance to do it. And a question I'd love to ask people like you is, when you think about yourself as well as the leaders in your life who have sustained excellence, so this is an intentional term, sustained excellence over an extended period of time. What have you found to be some of the common attributes of those people, like some of the, the behaviors that they exhibit that you've seen to, to be able to sustain it over time? Well, I think one thing, I mean, let's talk first just about leaders. Yeah. You know, like people who have been successful in leadership roles. Uh, one thing I've noticed is that the best leaders have this quality. Well, first of all, they have a quality of being able to empower people. But at the heart of that ability to empower people is sort of this, they get a thrill out of seeing other people at their best. Like they, and, and, and I would say maybe the corollary to that is they can't stand it to see somebody who's not at their best, to see yeah. someone who's not fulfilling their potential. You know, so I think that uh, the best leaders just, it, it gives them the creeps to see people not at their best. Yeah. And they love to see people at their best, you know? So it's sort of like this, this my, they got, they're driven from both poles. Yeah, you know, my dad told me early on um, it, that life is so much richer when you can, when the, when your influence and what you do lifts others up and helps them, and you can do that through empowering them, through trusting them, through loving them, that was like my favorite part of what you're talking about. Is like this, this, this amazing love. You're flying all over the country, right? Single engine plane yourself, and you're experiencing all these different people. Which, by the way, I just from from meeting so many different people on the line, this conference is 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 got people from all over the world. It was awesome, but you're doing this, like you're traveling all over the place. What are some of the things you're learning as you're, as you're putting yourself in these positions of meeting all these different diverse type of people where some, some are, maybe the, you're, you're scared because they're different and then you meet them, you're like, wait a second, like this is so cool. So I'm just curious what yeah. you learned. From well, them. I mean, one thing I would say, which is an extension of what I learned from Will when I was 15 years old, the guy I talked to, yeah. Dairy Queen, the, the homeless person, is that not only can anyone be, be your teacher, I mean, anyone can be your teacher. And I would say that the people you would think would teach you the most in life, let's say, you know, high level executives and CEOs and stuff, will probably not teach you anywhere near as much 
as the people in life who are in entry-level positions, who are minimum wage workers, who are someone who helps you carry your bag, or someone who helps you, serve you at a fast food restaurant. It, those people tend to have so much more to teach you because they are in the game of learning it themselves, and they've just come uh, upon maybe an epiphany of something that moves them. And, and whereas people in very high-level positions, they get more and more polished, and sometimes they don't, they don't have access to their heart anymore. And the place where you learn the most is from someone's heart. And so when I travel all around the country meeting people from all these different walks of life, I've found that not only can any of them be my teacher, they are my teachers. They're, from, oh. they're the people from, my, from whom I learned the most of anybody. And, and, uh, and these are people who, whose voices would otherwise perhaps never be heard. These are not famous people. They're not people. Some of them are becoming famous because the documentary, now they're, <laughs> they're getting a hit up on social media and stuff. But, but they're people who are you know, maybe unknown, but incredibly wise, I you know? That. And so it's just so, it's such an honor to be able to go, to go meet with them. And of course the airplane's a big part of that. But one of the biggest lessons that I keep consistently learning from person after person after person after person who I meet is the value of struggle. You know, it's this, it's this, and it's the funny thing. Here in the United States, and really any first world country, if you want to call it that, what is our biggest goal in life, it seems? To eliminate struggle, to increase comfort, to become wealthy, to become, to have it, to be fat, dumb, and happy, as the saying goes, or, you know, to be by the pool with a drink and I don't need to do anything anymore. <laughs> I mean, there's all these people in this country and these other first world countries who have this dream of, and almost the whole world, who have this dream of someday having it easy, hmm. of someday being in comfort. And it, what's really funny about that is that the most incredible people, and these people I'm meeting through my journeys around the country, these incredible people, those who have undergone the most struggle are in the place of the highest learning. Hmm. Those who have gone through the most struggle have the most wisdom to share. Those who have gone through the most struggle are the mentally strongest. You know, struggle is the most undervalued hmm. um, happening in our lives. And it's the most powerful teacher and so, and it's kind of funny, you talked a lot about sports and athletics and how hard you struggled and tried and tried and tried. And we all seem to accept that struggle makes sense in athletic endeavors, in running a marathon, doing a triathlon, climbing Mount Everest. You know, we all expect it's gonna hurt. And the more we hurt in training, the better we're gonna get. And the more we hurt, the bigger our muscles will get. The more we hurt, the bigger our heart, and, you know, the better our heart will pump blood. The, better, the more we hurt, the better our lungs will function. We all accept that. Well, why the hell can't we accept that the same kind of struggle when it happens here, hmm. mentally, is going to build us into a better person, yeah. is going to increase our wisdom, is going to make us a wiser and more capable human being. Yeah. You know, but yet when we have struggle here, we're like, we don't like it. You know, we don't like, if we have a hard, we have to have a hard conversation with our boss. Well, and I'll tell you, that's a question I keep seeing popping up. It pops up in all different words. But really what the question is, what do I do with my lousy boss? Yes. Yeah. That's really what everyone's asking. Yeah. God, this is all cool, but what about my stupid boss? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And of course, everyone here is a boss is like, they're not talking about me. It's some, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I, listen, I, I get it. I get it. Um, but what do you do about your lousy boss? I mean, I, people are asking me during the break question. They don't ever say my lousy boss. They're just like, well, it's kind of tricky with my boss. So what do you do? Well, I think the answer is have the tough conversation. Yeah. With my boss? Yes, with your boss. Well, what if they fire me? Okay. That's okay if they fire you. If you try to have a conversation with your boss to try to help them be a better leader, and it's coming from a place of, I mean, let's say you're my boss. In fact, I'll do a demo. You're my boss. You're okay. a terrible boss, let's just say. Let's say you're terrible. Okay. You don't know it, I know it, okay? okay. It might, wouldn't look like, hey, Ryan, I just want to tell you, you're a terrible boss. Of course you're not going to say that. But you might say, God, you know, Ryan, um, 
a lot of times during the big meetings, you know, you're kind of calling me out in a way that feels kind of threatening to me. And, and look, no, I'm not trying to say you're doing something wrong, but I feel really threatened. It makes me kind of clam up and it doesn't bring out the best in me. And so if you could just help me out a little bit by maybe, when you ask me a question during a meeting, maybe ask it to me in a way, uh, you know, that, that, that brings it out of me a little bit better. Maybe ask it a little bit more gently because I get really intimidated. I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of intimidated by you, you know. I'll take this back to a real life example. When I first started in LA for a few years and I came back to Denver and I joined this law firm, the one where you had to prove you're a great leader, great lawyer and develop a practice. And I had this really intense army ranger named partner, the guy who founded the firm. He's a good friend of mine now, Corky. Well, I had this time with Corky where um, he, he was getting in this position where he wanted to make me a partner of the firm. And so he said, you know, you're the next partner around here. And it was about a year after I joined. So I was like, really? You know? And, uh, and so we were having this talk at his desk one day and he sort of challenged me on something. Uh, you know, hey, what do you think about this? And I said, and I gave him the answer. And he goes, well, that's not the right answer. I said, well, yeah, it is the right answer. And he goes, and he took a cup of water and he slammed it on his desk and he said, no, it's not the right answer. And water got on me and he yelled at me. And well, hell, it freaked me out and it hurt. And so I got up and I walked out of his office and I walked down to my office and I shut the door. And I was just so rattled. I was like, holy crap, I trusted this guy. I felt like we had this friendship and he slammed this glass of water down. So he came down to my office and my middle name's Frederick. So he came to my office, he goes, Fred, what are you doing? You know, where, why'd you walk out? And I said, man, Corky, you know, God, I, you know, I, 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 that really hurt. Like I don't, that doesn't work for me. And you know, I think maybe it's best that I resign from this firm. I just, that doesn't work for me. And he said, and he looked at me and he said, Fred, I'm sorry. And he said, and he said the kindest words ever. I mean, he said, you know, I look at you as a brother and my best friend and the brother I never had. And I'm so sorry I did that to hurt you and I will never hurt you again. Well, and we've been friends ever since. We were partners for years and years and years. Uh, when I went to Chipotle, I made him, I was the general counsel of the Chipotle before I went there, the lawyer. But then I made him general counsel. We had this long, long, uh, incredible, lifelong friendship. And I have no doubt that friendship would never have happened if I wouldn't have just said, hey, it doesn't work for me. I can't do it. That hurts too much. Huh. So I exposed my vulnerability. Now, if I had not done that, I had good grades in law school and stuff. I had opportunities. I could have gone somewhere else. I would have gone somewhere else. I was ready to leave that law firm. But he came down, walked in, and I just told him what was on my mind. More of this conversation from the 2022 NBAA Leadership Conference in just a moment. But first, this message from NBAA. NBAA Flight Plan listeners, the latest digital edition of your magazine is ready. Just visit nbaa.org insider, and all the latest intel will be in your hands. We're back now with a conversation between consultant and podcaster Ryan Hawk and former Chipotle co-CEO Monty Moran. We'll pick back up with insights on how evolving past the harmful and even destructive perceptions we may have of ourselves can help us to engage with others. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you've taken from that experience as a litigator into your world since then with Chipotle and beyond now uh, that you learn like in the courtroom negotiations like because that's like that's everyday oh, it was stuff, awesome and that's like great training ground for that. oh it was the biggest education yeah I got it. it was wonderful well I'll tell you one thing I learned that was profound from my years I took thousands of depositions you know which is an examination under oath you're asking someone questions they got to answer there's a court reporter and you're you've sworn under oath they have not the questioner, but so I took a lot of these depositions. And one thing I quickly learned in these depositions is not 
to listen so carefully to what someone is saying, okay? It's kind of a paradox. I had to listen to what they were saying because I had to picture what it's going to look like on the transcript. Can I use that which they're saying on the transcript as an effective tool of evidence in my argument at trial? But also, I saw when they were saying something to me, I I, I trained myself to not not listen so much to what they were saying, but what are they actually communicating? Like their body language and everything. everything. Body language, cadence, sad, sad or happy, high energy, low energy, leaning forward, leaning back, you know, nervous, relaxed. All those other things communicate way more than their words. Legions more, why? Because all of us have learned to lie with our words. (laughs) All of us lie. Okay, and I don't mean it as a moral judgment upon any of us, but if I go ask someone in this audience right now, in the hall, passing by, on the way to the bathroom, and they're in a hurry, and I'm in a hurry, and let's say they're having a crappy morning, you know, their dog died, and I say, how are you doing? They're likely to say, pretty good, pretty good, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good, you know, that's a lie. (laughs) It's not true, you know, and so one of the things that makes you, I think, a, a profoundly better communicator is to start realizing that the words are probably at least partially not true. You know, if somebody comes up to me after my speech and goes, yeah, I did a good speech and walks by, was my speech good? Probably not, right? (laughs) If there's absolutely no enthusiasm in what they say and they feel like they have to say it, they're saying because they have to say it. It's a lie, it's not true. So people say a lot of things to be pleasant, to be kind, be out of habit, good, how are you, good, how are you? See you later, bye. (laughs) You know, and so, And so there's all this stuff that's built up through our societal mores and norms and socially accepted uh, behaviors, all this stuff that's not quite honest, that comes out in words. But we all are, most of us, unless we're extraordinary poker players, are not that good at lying with our body language, Hmm. with our tone, with our intonation, with the way we, with our energy. We're not that good at lying with it. Now, when I was doing these restaurateur interviews at Chipotle, I was interviewing, well, I, like I said in my book, you know, I figure 25,000 or more people one-on-one at a table. This is over 12 or 13 years, so it took a while. But a lot of the people I was interviewing were not first, their, English was not their first language. Hmm. Most of them, Spanish was their first language. And for many of these people, English was not something they had mastered very well yet. I didn't know Spanish very well, but I started to cobble together sort of rudimentary Spanish to ask them questions and to listen to them. I found that what I learned from them was much more accurate, much more honest than the native English speaking people with whom I spoke. They didn't have the prowess of English language yet to bullshit me. You know, so when I would ask him, hey, so how's it, you know, let's say their boss's name is, you know, Tom. So, hey, how's it working? You know, and I would tell, hey, how's how's it working with Tom here? They'd be like, "Um, well, Tom, um," and I'm like, I I hear you. (laughs) You know, because if they love Tom, it would sound like, oh, Tom. (laughs) And I understand. I mean, doesn't even matter what they say, you know. How's Tom? Tom. Or how's Tom? Oh, Tom. You know, I mean, so. It's, it's a profoundly different, uh, you know, and, and if you're listening, if you've got your radar out there to hear the stuff that no one's trying to convey to you, you're gonna learn legions about them, about what's important, about how they're feeling, about where they are mentally, emotionally, spiritually, about whether they're having a horrible day or a great day. And when you listen to that to which they do not want you to listen, and you respond to that instead of their words, you gain enormous credibility with them. 
and they trust you and they believe in you and they realize this person cares about me. They might not even realize that you care about them here, but they know it here, okay? Because, whoa. So if, let me go back to the person on the way to the bathroom, on the way to the bathroom, I walk by someone and if I say, let's say I'm walking a little slower where there's some ability to perceive something, I say, hey, how are you doing? They go, pretty good, how are are you doing? And I feel, whoa, I might stop and go, hey, hey, hey. You said you're doing good, but you don't sound good. Are you okay? In that two second interaction, what have I just done? I've shown them that I care. I've actually demonstrated them that I'm concerned about them and am willing to overlook their words in favor of really understanding their heart. That I want to be of service. I'd like to know what's wrong. Maybe I can assist. All of that in a two second interaction. Is that worth your two seconds? You're damn right it is. All the most powerful interactions you're gonna have in your life are gonna be when you actually look for and experience someone's heart what's coming through their heart, what's coming through that's most authentic and honest. It's not their words, almost never. Certainly not in a poker game. You also have written about fear, insecurity, pain, heartbreak. Like this is something that I think is is part of, I give you credit, it's part of your story, a part of what you're willing to talk about. Everybody has these things. They don't all broadcast them or talk about them. What are some of the ways that you've battled and dealt with insecurity, fear, pain, heartbreak, how have you handled those things in your life? You know, it's been, it's, it's painful to be me. I think it's painful to be any, any of us, right? I mean, we have pain, we have hurt, we have insecurity, we have unpleasant sensations as human beings. But as a young kid, I think I, you know, when I felt painful feelings, I always assumed that it was like something was wrong with me. Because I had these great parents, you know, they were, I guess, just sort of ideal, it looked ideal, right? My dad was this brilliant, sort of Harvard, Princeton, Brown scientist, you know. He went to, you know, he went to Princeton undergrad, then he went to Brown for his PhD, then went to Harvard for his postdoctoral fellowship, and, you know, he had this pedigree, and he was this great-looking guy, and he was super articulate, and he knew every word, and he spoke Latin, for heaven's sakes, insofar as it can be spoken. Um, and, and, uh, and then my mom was this sort of lovely registered nurse who became a psychologist, and who's this brilliant person, and really, and just lively. And, and, and then my brother, God, that was really screwed it up. I had one brother, and lo and behold, he was the good-looking one, and just, I mean, gorgeous, and he had the blonde hair, the blue eyes. He had that kind of feathered hair back then in the 70s and 80s, which was all cool, where it parts in the middle, and it fl- fl- <laughs> like the young rock star guys, you know? So I, so I felt like, God, I got this gorgeous brother, I got these successful parents, and I'm just this kid who's, like, insecure and vulnerable, and I don't like my vulnerability. And then when he was nasty to me or beat me up and, you know, every now and then he'd punch me. I mean, what older, what older brother doesn't? Mine did. Anyway, so if, he, if we got in a fight and he'd like beat me up, I would go to my mom later and go, I don't want to forgive him. I, can't, I keep forgiving. Like he wants to go throw the frisbee with me. I don't want to forgive him, but I keep forgiving him. I can't help but forgive him. And my mom told me that story again recently. Like I used to get furious with myself that I couldn't hold a grudge. And I've never been able to hold a grudge. I don't hold grudges. It's weird. I mean, I should. I feel like I should. I'd like to get better at it, but I have not been able to, I've not been able to master it. So I'd always forgive him right away. And, but I thought it was a weakness of mine, you see. I mean, I really believed it was a weakness. I was furious with myself when I'd say yes to go play Frisbee. So here he beats the hell out of me. I'm like, you know, my nose is bleeding. I wiped my nose. And 20 minutes later, he's like, Monty, let's go play Frisbee. I'm like, okay, you know. And, uh, and so I was just this young kid who, you know, just like wanted to be loved and wanted to be, under, you know, wanted to be understood. Like, I guess all of us, all of us want to be loved and understood. If, if you don't, let, let, come talk to me because I'd like to figure out your secret. But uh, we all want that. And, and, I just didn't, and I just didn't feel good enough. I just could never become that person that I wanted to be, which was I wanted to be tough. 
I wanted to be emotionally impermeable. I wanted to not give a damn when someone hurt my feelings. I didn't want to have feelings because feelings got in the way. They kept hurting. So it took me a long time. And so that's when I talk about pain and heartbreak. I was always heartbroken because everything hurt. The smallest insult, the smallest non-compliment, a compliment that wasn't a big enough compliment, a really good compliment that could have been better, hurt. <laughs> everything hurt. So I was this sort of giant, delicate, like radar screen looking for a reason to be hurt. And I found many. You know, it took me a long time to actually realize that that delicate thing about me, that thing where I feel everything that everyone's thinking. I mean, I've got this perception, this weird perception. I tend to just feel what people are feeling and what they're thinking. And I thought it was this horrible weakness and I kept trying to get rid of it. My mom always told me it was a strength as a kid. Oh, that's a strength. Yeah, thanks, mom. But someday I finally realized, wow, I've just got to accept that that's me and forgive it. It doesn't matter whether somebody thinks it's good or somebody thinks it's bad. I had to forgive myself and then realize that it's okay. So I'm hurting right now. And what I, what I found was that if I could allow that, then the amount of joy that sprung from that was incredible. And so, and that's where I started to kind of get really interested in the ego and the essential self, you know, and sort of this juxtaposition between we all have an essential self, we all have an ego. With some people, it's like this. In fact, with most people, it's really entwined. It's so entwined that most people do not know where their ego starts and ends and where their essential self starts and ends. But with work, we can sort of gradually tease it apart where we go, okay, now I see the ego and now I can allow some room for my essential nature. And I think that that's the greatest lesson I learned from being essentially, you know, a really scared kid who thought that I was a wimp. And I wasn't objectively a wimp. I maybe became six foot four. I was 225 pounds. I was a big guy in college and everything. But I always felt wimpy at heart. In fact, I said to someone here yesterday, they were like, oh God, I'm really sorry with my feelings. I said, oh, don't worry, I'm a total wimp. And they laughed because they knew what I meant. And it was like, okay, cool. Huh. Now we're both wimps. Now let's talk. The conversation wraps up as Monty talks of how his business aircraft helps him connect with a variety of people. The thing that I enjoy more than anything in the world is bringing together a group of people who uh, love each other, care about each other, are open and willing and just to have a good time together. But another thing I do is I go on airplane road trips. So I take my TVM, I, we have a bunch of friends and we fly around to different places for a week. And they're kind of rule, the unwritten rule is we don't ever talk about where we're going the next day. So that morning we'll get up, oh, where do you want to go? And we'll go and we'll land somewhere and we'll just see what happens. We don't get a hotel room in advance. Sometimes we don't get a hotel room at all because there's not one. And so we end up just seeing what the day brings and, and sort of live in the moment. And it's really, really fun. Something cool you can do with an airplane that's a huge blessing. But I think that, I, I mean, I love people. I'm fascinated by people. I, I find something in everybody to admire very, very quickly. You know, and whenever I meet someone, anybody, right away, I'm just looking at all the beautiful qualities they have that I don't have, that I wish I had, or, or like, wow, and, and I find so much to admire. And I think that since I find so much to admire, being around people for me is a real treat. Great insights and advice. For more tips and information about becoming an effective business aviation leader, visit nbaa.org leadership. And also be sure to check out the full hour-long conversation between Ryan and Monty, along with the audience Q&A, at the Learning Leader website, learningleader.com podcast. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking your virtual assistant or connected device, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for a new episode of Flight Plan. Flight Plan.